Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we share stories of people who experienced horrible things and try to imagine what they went through, as well as look for opportunities that could have made a difference and encourage people to help others that are being abused. When a person is kidnapped, it's always at a moment when they're not expecting it. Nothing can prepare someone for the unknown factors they'll face when they're taken to a stranger's domain and forced to live the way their captor wants them to. But somehow, many of the people who face these circumstances are able to hold on to some shred of hope, despite having no idea if or when an opportunity will arise. This week, we'll talk about a person who is able to have the courage to rescue herself even after accepting her fate of living in captivity. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm his wife, Rosie. Yes. In case you were curious, we are married. <laughs> um, you're leaving me today. I am. Yeah, in about four hours, huh? Yep. I'm going to Port Eagle. Portugal. I just say it weird. <laughs> uh, yep, but by the time people listen to this, will I be almost back? Yeah. Sweet. We actually already recorded this episode as well, which we mentioned in last week's episode, but the sound quality wasn't good enough because Burrito broke our other sound USB interface, so yep. <laughs> yeah, we had to get a new one, emergency shipping, or whatever it's called. <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> Amazon Prime. Yeah. Sorry, we just woke up. So this is like our last chance to get this recorded so we don't miss a week. Yeah. Um, since we already recorded it and it didn't turn out very well. So we wanted to make sure to give you guys the best quality we could and we're going to do it again. Today we're sharing a story from another new country that I don't think we've covered before, Japan. So just like last week... Please forgive us with pronunciations. We're going to try to walk you through the case along with us as ignorant Minnesotans. And you bet. also, what'd you say? You oh, bet. You betcha. <laughs> and also, we just released our eighth premium episode on Patreon, which is also based on someone from Japan, although the story takes place somewhat in France. And it's just a real bonkers, bonkerini story. Yeah, it is. Really messed up. And we had a guest speaker as well. Yeah, Rosie's brother was with us. He is a kid. He's 17. Yeah. So (laughs) So go in with an open heart and an open mind. (laughs) (laughs) But um, thank you, Sam, for doing that with us. But tonight. I was so excited. I was so much more excited for him to be on. (laughs) Tonight we're talking about a case from the 80s, actually, more 90s, I guess. And it's a story of Fusako Sano. Fusako Sano was born in 1981. She lived in the town of Sanjo, which is part of the Niigata Prefecture of Japan. 
Okay, so I'm guessing most of our listeners are not from Japan. I had no idea what a prefecture was. I also didn't do very well in geography as a kid. But is the term Japan uses for different subdivisions of the country, kind of like counties or provinces, or I guess just states? I had no idea. Okay, good. We don't know much about her childhood, but her family worked on a rice paddy. I always wondered why it's called a rice paddy. And it turns out it's based on a Malaysian word, paddy, P-A-D-I, which translates to rice plant. And FYI, for those of you who are like, just stick to the story. Well, this isn't your week because (laughs) I'll be sprouting a lot more random facts than usual this week for two reasons. One, this is based in Japan, which we know almost nothing about besides sushi and technology. There's a lot we can learn from it. The second reason is there's very little information available in English for this case because most of the documentation is in Japanese. Maybe someone who knows Japanese will cover this case in the future and be able to be more knowledgeable than us, but even if we have a hard time understanding a lot of things in this case, it's a very obscure story and we want to give it the voice it deserves. So now that my rant is over and you understand why... (laughs) I'm sprinkling in some random details. Let's continue. All right. So let's fast forward to November 13th, 1990, when Fusako was nine years old. She was in fourth grade at the time. That day after school, she attended a baseball game at the school with her friends. After the game, she left and started to walk home. But she never arrived at home. And to the people around her, it was like she'd vanished into thin air. They had absolutely no idea where she could be, so she was reported missing. Police began an investigation and conducted a huge search, but they didn't find anything telling them where Fusako could be. They also considered the possibility that her disappearance could be linked to the history of North Korea kidnapping girls from other Asian countries. So this is another horrible thing I learned about while researching this case. From 1977 to 1983... At least 17 Japanese people were kidnapped by the North Korean government, and that's just the official record. It's possible there could have been hundreds that weren't confirmed to be North Korean victims, but I'd like to do a whole episode going into more detail on that in the future because that is a weird situation. So strange. I I had no idea about this either. Based on that history... Investigators for Fusako's disappearance thought this could have something to do with it, in which case, I don't know what they could do about it. North Korea, basically, these 17 people were held as hostages for negotiations with Japan. So it's just such an evil thing to do and a twisted concept of diplomacy or whatever they're trying to accomplish with it. The search for Fusako cooled down because they just weren't finding any answers. There was no information for 10 years because it was just silent. Now we're going to fast forward to January 28th, 2000, and we are going to introduce a couple new characters here. That day, doctors from the Amagasaki Health Center visited a home in Yatsuya, Amagasaki City. I think it might be Amagasaki. Dang it. But it's okay. Amagasaki? Amagasaki? Oh, Amagasaki. Okay. Well, that was another town in the Niigata Prefecture. (laughs) This was the home of Nobuyuki Sato. 
waiting for a oh yeah a that, nod. That was good. I'm probably wrong too. So in 2000, he was a 37 year old man. He lived at this home with his 73 year old mother, who had called the health center multiple times that month because her son had been violent with her and she needed treatment. She said he'd been acting strangely and had been having violent outbursts towards her. She had actually called them three times total over the past few weeks before this, but they were having trouble scheduling a good time to come over. Apparently her son was flipping out because she had been trying to go into his upstairs bedroom, but he did not want her in there. So he's 37 years old, living with his mom, and he treats her like crap? Sounds like a real loser. And why the heck could she not go in his room? I'm sorry, but if you're 37 and you're living with your mom, your mom's got every right to do anything she wants in your room. Right. What the heck? That's what you'd think. While the doctors were visiting the mother, they made a discovery they weren't expecting. A teenage girl came up to them and said, I was abducted near the school by a man who forced me into a car. For nine years, I did not take a step out of the house. Today, I went out for the first time. The girl's name was Fusako Seno. This was nine years and two months after her disappearance. And remember, she was nine years old when she disappeared. So she had spent literally half of her life away In from that her parents. The doctors felt that the 37-year-old man could be mentally unstable. So they admitted him to the hospital for examination. You think he's unstable? <laughs> right. Fusako was extremely thin and weak, and her muscles had begun to atrophy because of the lack of use. She had literally been locked in one room of the house for over nine years. One room. Can you imagine? My mind would explode. No. I just couldn't do it. Ugh. She was severely dehydrated, and her skin was very pale from the lack of sunlight except for some yellowish splotches on her skin as she was suffering from jaundice. Which is a condition where your skin and even your eyeballs will start to appear yellow because of a buildup of bilirubin in the blood. And bilirubin, it's a kind of a weird name for a component of blood. But yeah, it sounds a, like an alcoholic beverage <laughs> or a sandwich. Yeah, it's a compound in our bodies that helps break down components of blood, and it's essential for clearing the body of waste. So obviously jaundice can be really itchy and really annoying to live with, but because she was being held captive, she wasn't able to seek any medical treatment, so the poor girl just had to deal with it. The ordeal Fusako had to live through caused her mind to stop developing, so... Although she had the body of a 19-year-old woman, she still acted like the 9-year-old girl that went missing back in 1990. Yeah, she forcefully had all mental stimulation cut off from her, and she was only in the 4th grade at the time. So this man stole her ability to be educated in her youth as a typical Japanese adult would be by this time. They found also that she suffered from intense PTSD, and when she was reunited with her family... Her mother didn't even recognize her at first because she'd last seen her as a nine-year-old girl. And now here she is, a 19-year-old woman. Ugh. That's got to be so surreal, like for parents whose children went missing and they're reunited after probably losing hope. 
Mm-hmm. And especially to see what terrible condition she's in. Yeah. I just can't imagine the emotions. Because they're not the same children they were before. Yeah. It's like even if you do get them back, they'll it'll never be normal. It'll never go back to the way things were. Right. Now that she's back, she was able to tell her story. Um, so now let's talk about what happened by her account, the day she disappeared, and how she ended up locked in the bedroom of Nobuyaki Sato. Back on November 13th, 1990, as Fusako was walking home from the baseball game, then 28-year-old Nobuyuki Sato drove up to her and forced her into his car. He was an unemployed man living with his mother and known as somewhat mentally disturbed. He drove her to his home in... Kashi Wasaki, is that right? As right as we're probably going to get it. So, <laughs> And this was also in the Niigata Prefecture, and that's where he held her captive. At some point during her captivity, they moved to the home where she was discovered in the Amagasaki City, which was 55 kilometers or just over 34 miles from where Fusako was taken. When she was taken, she was terrified. She had no idea what was going on or what was going to happen to her. He tied her up in his bedroom and left her like that for the first several months of captivity. Just, like, to be tied up like that for months? To not be able to relax naturally? Most people can't even go, like, more than a couple hours without relaxing and getting into a comfortable position. But for months, to be uncomfortably tied up? Ugh. As time went on, he untied her so that she could record horse races for him on the VCR. If she forgot to record the races, he would punish her using a stun gun. And that's not a mild punishment. It seems a little over the top for Basically electrocuting. (laughs) What a strange request. That's the reason why she got to have freedom of her limbs. I guess horse racing must have been big in Japan in the 90s. Or at least for him. Yeah. In the 90s. He would also beat her or even use a knife to threaten her if he wasn't happy with the way she was behaving. She said that she eventually just gave up and accepted her fate. Fusako said she was too scared to escape and eventually just lost the energy to escape. And how can you blame her? She has no idea if she'll ever actually be able to get away from this monster. And it's almost like a coping mechanism for some people to just accept things the way they are and try to make the best of it but even though she said this that she accepted it we see that she didn't really give up because she had the courage to come forward and tell the doctors who she was and it seems like she was just trying to get by and survive by accepting things and again i want to reiterate she was only nine years old when she was kidnapped we saw this Mm -hmm. a similar kind of thing with jc dugard where You know, she played along with what was happening, but she never gave up, Mm -hmm. you know. Her captor would feed her either instant meals or meals that his mother cooked. And according to the mother, this whole time, she had no idea there was a girl held as prisoner in her home. And as crazy as that sounds, don't Mm -hmm. you think that sounds crazy? Well, yeah, nine years. I I mean... When you first hear this story, you think, how the heck did the mom not notice a, another living being in her house? Right. Like, didn't she make noise ever? You would think, but or I guess in a, VCR? 
the horse races? Hmm, that's a good point. But this is what she says, and this kind of makes sense because apparently she was never allowed in her son's room, either during or before the kidnapping. It was like off limits. And it really seems like she was just scared of her own son and his violent outbursts. And in the beginning, she had actually called the police because of his violent outbursts. And she said she was trying to go into his bedroom. So I wonder if she did hear weird noises, but Mm -hmm. had no idea what they were. Do you think Fusako knew that the mom was in the house? Uh, That's a good question. Because if she was never let out of the room, I don't want to make any assumptions. But like if she was cooking meals for them, I don't know. (laughs) Just... So curious. Fusako's captor would cut her hair and she was barely ever permitted to bathe, except on very rare occasions. There is no bathroom or toilet upstairs where she was confined. So I'm wondering how she took care of her business, you know? Like, did he give her a bucket or something? No matter what, it had to be demeaning and horrible. Well, yeah. Man, there's so many details in the story that are missing that you just, I mean, totally can't get. I know. Because we don't know Japanese. (laughs) But, man, this story is just strange, really. It is. Her days in captivity were very dull. She'd spend most of her time listening to the radio. For the first eight years of captivity, she wasn't even allowed to watch TV. But he finally allowed her to watch it during the last year. Okay, she had to record horse races on a TV with a VCR, but then she wasn't even allowed to watch TV. She had to stay on that specific thing. Like, the last year she was allowed to watch whatever she wanted. Interesting. But okay, when she recorded the horse races, it had to stay on that channel. I don't even remember how to record things on the VCR. I know. <laughs> it's such a almost primitive concept now that we have on-demand everything. I mean, even DVRs are outdated now. It's Mm -hmm. so weird. It went so fast, too. This is really interesting, because when I read this, that her final years when she was allowed to watch whatever she wanted on TV, I almost wondered if something she watched inspired her to want to escape. Because for so long, she was pretty much cut off from any external mental stimulation or any social interactions with anybody. But now that she was able to watch TV, maybe that kind of stimulated something in her. Because up until that, she was stifled from being able to learn and grow. And this is just speculation, but Law & Order was on in the 90s, wasn't it? (laughs) Do you think that aired in Japan? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. (laughs) Can a Japanese listener get in touch and let us know? I mean, maybe it was. Who knows? At some point during her captivity, Fusako's captor realized that she would need some feminine hygiene products. Yeah, of course she is. But he wasn't man enough to go purchase them himself. No, he actually asked his mom to do it for him. And this is another reason why I think, how did the mom not know something was going on? Right? It's really unclear how he convinced her to do this, but this is why police also didn't believe her when she said she had no idea someone was captive in her house. On the other hand, what mother would suspect this of her son? It's such a jump from, I wonder why my son needs tampons, to he must have someone in captivity in his room, you know? It's Mm. like maybe he told her he had a girlfriend or something and she couldn't afford it, 
I personally don't think it's that unbelievable that she wouldn't suspect him of having someone locked up in his room, you know? It's such a jump to make mm-hmm. if she has no idea. Now we know that Fusako eventually got out of there, and thankfully she was able to return home to her parents. So now let's talk about what we know of Fusako's life following her escape from captivity. Over the next few years following her escape, Fusako's health eventually returned to somewhat normal. She's able to help out with her family's rice paddy now, but she still suffers from the effects of PTSD and is having trouble adjusting to normal life. She has a hard time making new friends and doesn't have a strong desire to be around other people. (laughs) You and me both, girl. (laughs) She also prefers taking walks alone. That's fine. Mm Mm-hmm. And this makes sense. I mean, most people develop their social skills during their teen years in middle and high school, but she never experienced that. She was locked in a room by herself, and who knows what this guy was doing to her when he was around. Mm -hmm. Her chance for normal development, mentally, physically, socially, and emotionally, were all robbed from her. And she was essentially cut off from the outside world the only human interaction she had was with a mentally disturbed unemployed loser with rage issues and i hope that no one expected her to go back to normal no i mean how could you how could you possibly go back to exactly the way you were especially when she was nine years old when Mm -hmm. this all happened even after all of this she still finds ways to enjoy life she spends time practicing photography taking pictures of flowers primarily And she's also really into soccer. She's a huge fan of the local team, Albirex Niigata. I'm sure that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) She's even able to obtain her driver's license. So she's really made a lot of progress despite her circumstances, being able to start driving and become self-sufficient. And we mentioned earlier that Nobuyuki Sato was immediately hospitalized when they found Fusako in his bedroom. And I'm guessing that's not like a normal hospital, public hospital that you'd go to. I think it was more of like a mental hospital. Yeah, right. He was assumed to be mentally unstable and considered a suspect. About two weeks later, on February 11th, 2000, he was arrested. His trial would slowly churn out over the next three years. So, apparently, the Japanese legal system at the time didn't really take kidnapping very seriously because the prosecution really had to work to dig up as much as they could on this guy just to get some some kind of substantial charges. Because kidnapping... Someone that long doesn't count. Apparently. You you would think that nine years of keeping someone locked in your room would be enough to get a huge sentence, but not in this case. While they were looking into Fusako's kidnapper, they found that she wasn't even the first person he'd victimized. On June 13th, 1989, he'd been arrested for inflicting violence on another girl, and he was convicted for it in September of that year. But somehow, he was out of prison a year and two months later when he abducted Fusako. And his name had disappeared from any criminal watch list they ever had. So he was never even considered a suspect in her disappearance. And this became a huge criticism of the police in this case. 
How does someone get convicted of violence against another person in September of 1989 and then have the freedom to kidnap another girl in November of 1990, just 14 months later, and he wasn't on any type of watch list for some, like, you'd think that he would be on the police radar if someone went missing just to check up on this guy because of what he did last year. You would think. It didn't raise a single red flag for the police. So the prosecution threw everything they could find at this guy, including a shoplifting charge where he'd stolen some women's underwear. Very classy. Do you think that was for Fusako? Like with the feminine hygiene product situation he had going? That's a good question. Or maybe just completely unrelated. He had a weird fetish. I mean, who knows? It could be either way with this guy. But it's sad that they needed to add that minuscule charge on just to get the sentence they ended up with, which itself is disappointing. The defense did try to claim criminal insanity for him and declare him unfit for trial, but he was evaluated by psychiatrists and found mentally fit to face the charges. Based on the charges, the Nagata court could have sentenced him to a maximum of 15 years. Yeah, and... 15 years with all the charges they could dig up, but I don't understand how they could only do 15 years for a nine-year kidnapping charge. It gets even more ridiculous. The court only sentenced him to 14 years in prison, one year less than they could have, even though this was only five years longer than he'd held Fusako imprisoned in his bedroom. This sentence was on July 10th, 2003. So, he's already out and walking free for two years as of the recording of this. Hey, it's better than that one case. That does not make any sense, and it's unraging. Did I say unraging? I meant (laughs) enraging. It's somehow better than the sentencing for Steven Stainer's kidnapping. At least this one is longer than the actual kidnapping itself. I think Steven Stainer's, he was kidnapped for seven years, and his... Kidnapper only got five years. That boggles my mind. Yeah. How? I just how don't, would that be okay? I don't get how they decide these prison sentences. Needless to say, Fusako's family was really upset about this. Her father made a statement expressing his disappointment in the way his daughter's captor was treated. The family viewed it as a complete injustice and the lack of compassion for the victim and her family. And I couldn't agree more. This poor family went through so much, and I can't even imagine what Fusako went through. To know the man that took her and ruined her teen years and really negatively impacted the rest of her life is already out of prison? It's insane. And on top of this, there was another criticism of the police in this case. On the day that Fusako Sano was found, the Niigata chief of police, Koji Kobayashi, spent his evening playing Mahjong instead of coming to the station to supervise the situation. Because of all the criticism and other errors the police made, Kobayashi resigned a month later, on February 26, 2000. And the man he was playing Mahjong with resigned three days later from his position as head of regional police bureau. So this is really interesting. 
I mean, it's a big deal when a nine-year-old missing person is discovered, or a nine-year missing person. So she was missing for nine years. But instead, they had to finish playing their Mahjong game, which they could have just played at home on their Windows 98 computer. Sadly, seven years after her escape, Fusako suffered another tragedy. In 2007, Fusako and her father were on a walk together. They were visiting a pond, which was one of their favorite spots to take in the scenery. But somehow, her father ended up drowning in that pond. So can you imagine? This is the place they loved going together. And I'm sure they had a lot of good memories there. But now she has this memory of watching her father die there. That's so sad. And it would probably ruin it for her. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I can't say, but... I really hope she's doing okay now. And Fusako and her family, they've just chosen to stay out of the spotlight. Which is completely understandable. And most likely the reason so little is known about her story. We felt it was important to share because it is so unknown. And we really want to try to sympathize for her. She's another great example of doing what she had to to survive. And... In these captive situations, it's got to be so hard not knowing if you'll ever get out and trying to keep an eye open for an opportunity to escape. At the same time, trying not to get discouraged by the lack of opportunities you're having. And you don't want to lose the will to live. So it's really amazing when people can hold on to that hope and get out of these situations through years of disappointment. It's got to be hard to keep watching for opportunities when you're just so disappointed and so exhausted, mm-hmm. you know. But that wraps up this story. And like we said at the beginning, we're recording this a couple of weeks ahead of time because Rosie's leaving me again. <laughs> last time you were going to France. Mm-hmm. And dang, our podcast was just a little baby. Just a wee Back baby. then. Button in the oven. Now it's a toddler. (laughs) Yeah, I can't believe all of the people that have been so kind and supportive of us. And all you guys that listen every week, we can't thank you enough. Mm -hmm. So you already told our listeners, your grandma is taking you to Portugal. With my auntie. Did you say where you're going? I probably did. Well, Portugal. But um, Lisbon and Porto. I'm probably in Porto right now. I'm probably sitting in, in a winery... Overlooking a field of cows with a glass of wine in my hand. Unless you're listening to this in like 2027. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty excited about it. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to miss you though, babe. I know. I'm going to miss you too. I was really, really sad this morning. I know. (laughs) Um, So Ryan's going to need a little extra love. Yeah, I will. Calm down, ladies. I meant friendly. (laughs) yeah i don't think you need to worry about that all right we're gonna share a couple reviews this week because why not yeah you guys have been awesome sending us in new reviews oh yeah i want to thank you all too for your sweet messages after last week when we talked about i guess two weeks ago because this isn't coming out this week but when we talked about the bad reviews we've been getting. Sorry, I can't speak this early in the morning. And we've gotten so many kind words from people. So we want to thank you guys for that. You mean just about us as a team? Yeah. Yeah, just to clear things up, we are a married team. 
Me and Ryan have been married for six years, and I just wanted to make sure everyone knew it's true. <laughs> These rumors are true. We are married. <laughs> yeah, it was in response to the please get rid of your husband reviews. <laughs> yes. Yep. That person knew we were married. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're actually going to play the reviews that we already recorded but the sound quality was really bad. Now you guys will see why we re-record this whole episode, and hopefully you'll be able to tolerate it. So, here we go. All right, let's jump into the reviews. Yes. Did you say you have one that you wanted to read? Yeah, I want to read the second one. Oh, funny. okay. All right, well, I'll read the first one then. Okay. The first one is entitled Awesome Podcast from Dandelion, 1983. A Dandelion. On Apple Podcasts, she says... I'm, well, I guess it, I don't know if it's a girl or a boy, but they say, I'm, I stumbled upon this podcast a few months ago and am in complete astonishment of it. I hope that's good. Uh, <laughs> Rosie and Ryan are amazing storytellers and keep me hooked from the start. That's so sweet. I love the perspective from the victim's POV point of view. I also want to say thank you to them for putting together such wonderful content, and thank you for sharing your own personal stories. Five stars. I'm well. so glad that you said what POV meant, because until now, I did not know what that meant. Oh, really? No. <laughs> I'm like, post of victim? Pre of victim? Like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's just point of view. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dandelion. Yeah, I really like your name. It's cute. Uh, all right, do you want to read the other one? Yeah, the other one. <laughs> this one is funny. awesome. Uh, it's entitled Episode 77. And yet it's only four stars. But oh, yeah, yeah. it's better than three. Hey, Patricia. could have <laughs> bumped it up a star. It says, so I really wasn't going to review your show. At first, I hated it. The two of you seemed... <laughs> To me to be so childish but i kept listening i really don't know why but now i enjoy your show for all the same reasons i disliked it you are kind of childish and ryan does come across as breathy <laughs> i have asthma <laughs> and rosie sometimes you aren't very nice in your responses to ryan true but <laughs> you are real and calm and human down to earth I will keep listening. Thank you. I enjoyed the show now. <laughs> Patricia. Thank you, Patricia. That's funny. That's, that review is really cool because it shows that because we didn't give up after the first couple hundred bad reviews about <laughs> our voices, that people came around. You know what would be cooler, though? What? If she bumped it up a star. <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, four stars is is really good for someone that hated it at first, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe someday she'll give us a five-star review, but Ryan, we got to earn it. I'm sorry I'm mean to you sometimes. I know. You're you're not a mean person. Thanks. You, you're just, you know, snarky, spunky. <laughs> That's how I'd describe you. A spitfire. Spitfire, <laughs> yep. Um, wild mare. No, not a Mustang, not a mare. Oh. I know. It's Don't a boy. Mustangs have... Well, who cares? Whatever. You can be a Mustang. Thank you. All right. Um, but yeah, this is really cool because... 
I think just today we got another three-star review that they were like, What? I really want to like this podcast, but his voice is just so bad. We did? Don't worry about it. No, I, I didn't mean to pour gas on the fire. No, you're not. I, I just... feel like we're giving too much of a light to bad reviews, and well, I, guess I want to stop doing that. You are, because I didn't... Oh my gosh, you're right. It's it's about my voice. Mm-hmm. And Funny. I mean, I admit, I don't have a radio voice. I don't have a podcasting voice. And I, in a lot of people's minds, I don't have any business <laughs> podcasting. But you're a really good person. You said it in it's the like, thing. That's like when you're breaking up with someone. You're, uh, you're great. Wait. Oh, but he has a great personality. I'm sorry that I have a better voice than you. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. <laughs> Basically, if you read between the lines. Well, well, we might as well read it now because we're talking about in our list. We're alienating our listeners. It just says the content is well researched, victim centered, and compassionate. But I can't listen anymore because the way the guy speaks is so annoying and hard to listen to. I'm so sorry because obviously he's a really good person. Voices and speaking are both super important for podcasts. Well, I appreciate the honest feedback. And, I mean, it's your time. You do whatever you want with it. I completely understand if my voice rubs you the wrong way, if you want to stop listening. I mean, that's... It's your time that you're spending listening, and, you know, I respect that. Yeah. there's our, we, have, we do have another five-star. That was really nice. Did you want to save that one for next time? Yeah. Okay. Because I don't want to run out again. I just... Um, <laughs> it, I appreciate that... The voice thing is on you and not me, because I would be really crushed about it. So yeah. I appreciate. I was struggling a bit at at the beginning of the outline, but yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What I you appreciate doing? that it's thrown at you, but you can handle it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I I I do I did used to take it really personally when I would see bad reviews, but I mean I've kind of made myself uh, figure out the process I need to use to get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, imposter syndrome and self-doubt. And that's what my last Ryan Rambles on Patreon was about. is about getting over that, realizing the value of what we're doing and that people do appreciate it and, you know, finding my self-confidence that way. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's it's different every day, you know, how hard it is to respond to criticism. But overall, I think that it's important to be able to take criticism if it's done in a respectful way. So, and that was that I'm stu- I'm done listening to your podcast, but it was respectful, you know? It was. It so, was. I know you're not listening, but thank you for your respect. All right. Well, I'm going to miss you when you're gone. You can listen to this and think of me. It's true. Um, I do have up by now like almost 80 hours of of recording of your voice. voice. Wow. My angelic voice. Aw. Yeah, so that wraps it up. (laughs) 
<laughs> if you want to support us, you could do so by signing up for our Patreon. We would very much appreciate it. Um, what else we got? You can email us, vovpodcast at gmail.com. You could also follow us on Instagram at vovpodcast. What is it again? At vovpodcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, check out our Threadless store, which Ryan will tell you right now. vovpodcast.threadless.com. And that's all these links are in the show notes. As they always are. Yeah. Leave us a five star review. We'd appreciate it. And we'll give you a shout out on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry it got so real towards the end, but uh, that's kind of what we're going for. And I'm sorry if I swallowed into the microphone. I'm drinking a mug of green tea. Yes, we are human beings. We do drink stuff. Human beans. Right here. <laughs> I mean, it's good to filter out the people that hate us, because then, uh, you know, we want people to enjoy when they listen to our show. We don't want them to be mad while they're listening. You, know, so. you said you know quite a bit in this episode. You're really showing oh, yeah, your you Western accent. You betcha. Okay, now okay. we're rambling. <laughs> I'm just sad that this is our last recording before you go. Not true. We're going to do our Patreon episode. Yeah, but but, these but people, the Patreon episode will come out before either of the ones we've already recorded come out, mm-hmm. so it's kind of mind-boggling to think about. It's going to be a good one. If you're not a patron, you should probably sign up because it's, it's a bonkers one. It makes your head want to explode. Yeah, and you haven't even heard it yet. But I, I did because. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. We yeah. watched the documentary together. You didn't think I did, and I didn't think I did, but I. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We'll let you go before we talk your ear off. I gotta make banana bread. So bye. Bananas. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.